Let's all go to Yahweh in prayer. Father Yahweh, we come before you. We thank you so much for the blessings that you've bestowed upon each one of us. We pray that you would always be with us, Father, and with this ministry and with the work we're doing, that you would give us the tools and the blessings needed to fulfill your great commission. Father, we thank you for the family here, for the brethren here, for the friends. Father, we pray that you'll bless each one here and all those listening and all those worshiping you in spirit and truth today. We ask all this in the name of your Son, Yahshua the Messiah. Hallelujah. Y'all may be seated. Certainly good to see everybody here today. And as you can see the uh, message, uh, no, actually you can't see the message yet. So there it is. There it is. Okay. Well, as you all know, this is an important time of the uh, year, in about just four weeks Remaining, we have a Passover and the Feast of Love and Bread. These times are important. They mark the time, the remembrance of Yahshua's death and also his resurrection. But they also offer a lesson in the purging and coming out of sin. Now, we also know that this is an important time for the church. This time marks many of the important days, days like Mardi Gras, which we're going to focus on, Lent, Good Friday, and also Easter Sunday. Where today we're going to consider each one of these days from a historical standpoint, also look at what the Bible says about days like this, see if Yahweh approves. You know, many assume that these days are rooted in Scripture, that we find evidence for days like, of course, Mardi Gras, maybe not, but certainly Easter, maybe Good Friday, that that these days are scripturally based But we know that nothing could be further from the truth. These days are not found in Scripture. They're not found within Yahweh's Word. Or as we'll see in this message, these days were adopted from pagan worship, from heathen worship. We'll also see what Yahweh says about that within his Word as well. So to begin with, here's a short summary of each one of these uh, days. Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras. The day before Ash Wednesday, also called Fat Tuesday, Ash Wednesday, then the beginning of the 40 days of Lent, so Mardi Gras is the first uh, the, the Tuesday, and then the following day is Ash Wednesday, again begins the 40 days of Lent. Lent, 40 days of prayer and self-denial begins on Ash Wednesday, and by the way, that's where you see the crosses on the uh, foreheads here. It's amazing, you know, Yahweh says, put my name on, on their forehead, and they, they put this pagan cross. Uh, anyway, it goes on, and ends approximately six weeks later before Easter. Good Friday, the uh, traditional date of the Messiah's death. And, of course, we say traditional there because we're going to see it's not based on Scripture. Uh, Easter, the traditional date of the Messiah's resurrection, believed to have occurred on Sunday morning. So let's begin by talking about Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras. You know, when people think about Mardi Gras, they have images of extravagant parties, ornate floats, uh, fancy masks, uh, New Orleans maybe, sin. Of course, I think it's sin. And, uh, of course, immorality. Now, according to the uh, History Channel, this, this image may not be too far off. So I'm going to share with you. This is from the History Channel online. It says, Mardi Gras is a tradition that dates back thousands of years. So notice that there's a long history here. Thousands of years to pagan celebrations of spring and fertility, including the ruckus Roman festivals of Saturnalia and Lupercalia. When Christianity arrived in Rome... Religious leaders divided, decided to incorporate these popular local traditions into the new faith. And, you know, we're going to see there's a very long history of this within the church. They, 
would not remove it. Instead, they prefer to simply adopt it. We'll see this. It says an easier task than abolishing them altogether. And that really was a reason why. It's a lot easier to simply adopt them, to incorporate them, than to remove them. As a result, the excess and debauchery of Mardi Gras season becomes a prelude to Lent, the 40 days of fasting and penance between Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday, along with Christianity and Mardi Gras spread from Rome to other European countries, including France, Germany, Spain, and England. So we see here that Mardi Gras again dates back to Rome and to fertility worship, and we're going to see more of that today. Instead of removing these days, we find that the church had a different policy, a different strategy. They simply adopted these days. They amalgamated these days within their worship. You know, for those who may not know, this process has a name. This process is called, is called syncretism. And in this case, it's a blending of pagan ideas with Yahweh's word, something Yahweh says don't do. Matter of fact, in Jeremiah chapter 2, maybe one of the best passages in this regard, it says, learn not the ways of the heathen. Now, I don't know how more direct Yahweh can be, but he says here, learn not the ways of the heathen. We're not to follow or mimic in what they do. Now, based on this, we find that Mardi Gras is based on uh, two different um, observances. One is Lupercalia, the other is Saturnalia. Well, let's begin with Saturnalia. This is a seven-day observance. It was in honor of Saturn. And historically, it was between late and uh, mid to late December. It was a time of parties and overall sin and immorality. As for Lupercalia, this was observed in Rome on February 15th. I want to read an excerpt. This is from the Encyclopedic Britannica. Again, a pretty neutral source here. And it says this about Lupercalia. It says, each Lupercalia began with a sacrifice for the Luperci of goats and a dog. After which two of the Luperci were led to the altar. Their foreheads were touched with a bloody knife. And the blood was whipped, wiped off with wool dipped in milk. The ritual required that the two young men laugh. The sacrificial feast followed, after which the Luperci, the, I guess these were the priests, somewhat I get, cut thongs from the skins of the sacrificial animals and ran in two bands around the Palatine Hill, striking with the thongs at any woman who came near them. A blow from the thong was supposed to render a Roman fertile. In 494 C, the Christian church under Pope uh, Galicius I appropriated the form of the rite as the feast of the purification. You know, I think we would all agree that um, this is just insane. I don't know. uh, You know, it's hard to find words for this. certainly goes against everything we find within Yahweh's word. It's just, just an abomination. We see here that the church, though, instead of removing it, what happened? where the church, again, decided simply to amalgamate, to, to blend, uh, to adopt this day, and they, they repackaged, relabeled as they normally did, and they called this day the Feast of Purification. So you go from these animals being slaughtered and these uh, thongs of flesh being slapped against these women to uh, these uh, Feast of Purification. I don't, I don't know. I have a real hard time seeing the link there. Now, as a side note, Lupercalia is also also connected with Valentine's Day, and that's one reason we we don't do that here. Now, for the church, again, as we've already seen, Mardi Gras marks the Tuesday before Ash Wednesday. It's called Fat Tuesday. It's when they had the excess and the parties again, as we we see in Mardi Gras and other places throughout this world. Whereas uh, we've seen so, so many other pagan things, 
this observance of Mardi Gras went from Rome throughout Europe. And eventually, as we know, it landed here in this nation. And and we see a good example of that again in in New Orleans. Well, I want to read what the new, uh, or what the Catholic.org, this is an official site of the church. And here's what it says about Mardi Gras. It'll give you a slant on this, but it, it also acknowledges that it's not a, it's not a, a real um, holy time. It says, Mardi Gras strongly associated with wild bacchanalia and debauchery. But the original intent of the holiday and how it's kept by the faithful is much different. Fat Tuesday, as it is known in English, is a long-standing tradition of the Catholic Church. And it marks the last day of ordinary time before the start of Lent a time of fasting and repentance. While the parties in Europe, South America, and parts of the United States have gained the most attention in popular culture, they seriously misrepresent and outright eclipse the Catholic intent of the holiday. According to historians, the celebration of Mardi Gras has its roots in the pagan Roman celebration of Lupercalia. Of course, we just read that. This was a February holiday, and it honored the Roman god of fertility. It involved feasting, drinking, and carnal behavior. However, with the rise of the church in ancient Rome, Christian teaching and morals took root. But there always remained a strong need to blend ancient Roman traditional practices with the growing Christian church. The blending of tradition with new religion, religious beliefs was a common practice in the ancient world, and it helped people to transition away from paganism. You see how they take this very negative thing, and they put a positive spin on it. It's great for the people because it helps them come in. In fact, there are a number of ancient Roman traditions that uh, persevere in the Roman Catholic Church to this day, where they continue to guide the faithful. So according to what we see here, Mardi Gras is connected with, it says, Bacchanalia, now, the Wikipedia says, it says, quote, I'm quoting now, it says, Bacchanalia were Roman festivals of Bacchus, the Greco-Roman god of wine, freedom, intoxication, right? Holy stuff here. <laughs> intoxication and ecstasy. You know, I think as you can imagine, this was a time of uh, wild parties, a time of immorality, a time of debauchery, a time of heavy drinking, a time of just gross immorality across the board. Where today, Mardi Gras is known as Fat Tuesday, being the day before Lent. And Lent, by the way, again, is a time of self-denial, a time to prepare us again for the death and the resurrection of Yahshua the Messiah, where this time is viewed as one last hurrah. One last hurrah. It goes on to say here that what we often see with Mardi Gras was not the intent of the church, or I would hope not. But the church will defend Mardi Gras, say again, it's, it's not a time that should be avoided, and yet what we see is, is, not, the, is not what we had in mind. It goes on to say also here that the blending of pagan worship is, uh, was, was something common in the church, that again, this was done to, to help those coming in to help the pagans, to give them something they can relate to, to help with that transitional phase. Well, what does Yahweh say about that? Again, Yahweh says, don't follow the ways of the pagans. Don't do as the heathens do. But the reality is, Lent, Good Friday, really, 
Christmas, Sunday, worship, it's all from pagan worship. And you know what's amazing about that, about this, is it's so easy to prove. It is such an easy truth to prove. And you know, when people call the ministry, some people are kind of timid with his faith, because, um, well, let's face it, we're a very small minority within Bible-believing assemblies or churches or organizations. And I always tell people, you know, you need, we need to stand in boldness because we have the truth. You know, what we believe, we can prove. We can validate. Well, let's now move on and talk a little bit about Lent. And I want to begin with the Catholic Encyclopedia. So here's what it says about Lent. The real aim of Lent is, above all else, to prepare men for the celebration of the death and resurrection of Messiah. So, so that is why, in the purpose of Lent, the better the preparation, the more effective the celebration will be. One can effectively relieve the mystery, uh, the mystery only with purified mind and heart. The purpose of Lent is to provide that purification by warning men or weaning men from sin and selfishness through self-denial and prayer. By creating in them the desire to do God's will and make his kingdom come by making it first come first of all in their hearts. So we see here that Lent is again 40 days, and it begins on Ash Wednesday, the day after Mardi Gras, Fat Tuesday. It ends approximately six weeks later before Easter. Now, from the perspective of the church, what is, what is the reason for Lent? Well, again, the reason for Lent is to simply prepare us for the death and resurrection of Yahshua Messiah, to, to prepare our hearts. Now, I want you to notice in this quote, it used one word. It, say, it calls Lent a mystery. It calls Lent a mystery. And for me, that, this sort of stood out, and I'll explain why. You know, the church will often use this word when they can't rationally describe something. You know, I'll give you an example of this. When you look at the Trinity, go to a dictionary or an encyclopedia. I don't care. Whichever one you want to choose. And more than likely, you're going to see the word mystery in connection with the Trinity. And the reason why this is, is they can't rationally describe the Trinity. So it's a mystery. They use this word as a label when they can't rationally describe something, as we see here with Lent. Well, you know, if something can't be rationally understood... You know, I think we need to rethink it. I, need to re- I think we really need to rethink it. You know, so based on this, how is a person to prepare for Lent? Or this is done through self-denial. It's done through prayer. And uh, self-denial, by the way, this can be anything. This can be removing of certain foods, abstaining from festivities, other acts of penance. I worked with a guy many years ago. He's a good Catholic, and um, he put a rock in his shoe for Lent. So that's what he did. He, he, he was rock, uh, walking on this rock all day long, and, and you know, that was his way of, of offering a penance, if you will, to uh, Yahweh. So that's how he prepared for Lent. Now, do we find any paganism with Lent? Do we see either any heathenistic uh, connection with this day? I want to read what we uh, find from uh, two Babylon's uh, authors, uh, Alexander Hislop, and here's what he says. It says here, Lent, the 40 days abstinence of Lent was directly barred from the worshipers of the Babylonian goddess. Among the pagans, this Lent seems to have been an indispensable preliminary to the great annual festival in commemoration of the death and resurrection of Tammuz. So we see, according to Hislop, that Lent is connected to the 40-day fast of 
Tammuz, of the death and resurrection of Tammuz. Now, who was Tammuz? I want to read a a definition here, some information from the Expositor's Bible Dictionary. This is on Tammuz. It says, Tammuz, later linked to Adonis and Aphrodite by name, was a god of fertility and rain. So again, we see this fertility come into play. It says, in the seasonal mythological cycle, he died early in the fall when the vegetation withered. His revival by the wailing of Ishtar, we're going to talk about Ishtar later, was marked by the buds of spring and the fertility of the land. Such renewal was encouraged and celebrated by licentious fertility festivals. Believe me, I can't even begin to describe what went on, not in this room, not with kids. goes on to say the women would have been lamenting Tammuz's death. They perhaps were also following the ritual of Ishtar, wailing for the revival of Tammuz. Now, what's important here is that we recognize this connection, I believe, with fertility worship. Fertility worship. Everything about Lent, as we'll see with Easter, and even with um, the other days we find with the church calendar, involved uh, this fertility worship. Now, we also see another connection. Tammuz was associated with the sun. Tammuz was associated with the sun, so we also see nature worship. You know what's amazing is we see this fertility rites, this uh, nature worship, sun, moon, all throughout the days of the Roman church. You know, Sunday comes from the Latin dia solis, day of the sun. We know that Constantine, prior to supposedly converting to Christianity, I say supposedly because truthfully I don't believe it. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But we know that when he gave legal status to Christianity, that he was also a worshiper of Sol Invictus, the sun god. So sun worship has a very long history within the Roman church. I want to read one more quote. This again from the uh, two Babylons. Here's what uh, Hislop goes on to say. He says, among the pagans, this land, and by the way, let me, let me describe this term real quickly. Pagan was used in the ancient world not so much as a derogatory word, although it is derogatory, but not so much as a derogatory word, but to simply differentiate between biblical and non-biblical. So, you, so when you see the word pagan, think non-biblical, non-biblical. It is not a Bible-based religion. That's what pagan means from an ancient perspective. It says, among the pagans, this Lent seems to have been an indispensable preliminary to the great annual festivals of commemoration of the death and resurrection of Tammuz, which was celebrated by alternate weeping and rejoicing, and which in many countries was considerably later than the Christian festival, being observed in Palestine and Assyria in June, therefore called the month of Tammuz, in Egypt about the middle of May, and in Britain some time in April. To conciliate the pagans to nominal worship, or not nominal uh, Christianity, Rome, pursuing its usual policy, took measures to get the Christian and pagan festivals amalgamated. Amalgamated. That's simply it's a big word that says blended. Blended together. And by a complicated but skillful adjustments of the calendar. You know, I love how they, uh, they, they put this positive spin, complicated but skillful. There's nothing skillful about adopting pagan beliefs. I'm sorry. Goes on to say that it was found no difficult matter in general to get paganism and Christianity. Now, far sunk in adultery, idolatry, in this, as in so many other things, to shake hands. In other words, again, this, this combining. So we see again here that 
Lent is connected with this 40 days of mourning for Tammuz, this god of fertility, connected also again with the sun. You know, notice here that Tammuz, the worship of Tammuz, occurred at different places in different times. You know, for example, in Palestine, Assyria, says it occurred in June. You know, as a side note, the fourth month on the modern Jewish calendar is called Tammuz. Where do you think they picked up this name? Where is Babylon? Things changed in Babylon. You know, the fact is both Judaism and Christianity have adopted many, many pagan traditions throughout the years. That's one reason why we don't identify ourselves with, with either one. You know, people call and they say, or what are you? And, you know, I wish I had a great answer. I really, even to this day, don't have a real good answer. But I normally say, or we really don't identify with Christianity or Judaism. I said the problem is they, they, they both have deviated so far from the truth. You have as many traditions within modern-day Judaism as you do within Christianity. And the problem I see with a lot of, quote, believers, messianics today, is what they do is they take one foot out of Christianity, they plant the, that, that other foot into Judaism, and they think they have the truth. Where the reality is the truth is found somewhere between the two. It's not found in Christianity. It's not found in modern Judaism. It's found somewhere between the two. Somewhere between the two. Now, for Egypt, the worship of Tammuz occurred in the middle of May and also in Britain sometime in April. That goes on here to say that the policy of the church was to amalgamate. Again, the, the, the word amalgamate means to blend, blend these pagan observances. They would do this by simply repackaging these days, renaming it something else, giving it some sort of other name, and adding it to their church calendar. This was, again, their, their mode of operation all throughout time. But as we've already seen, you know, through Jeremiah, Yahweh says, don't learn the ways of the heathen. Don't follow in this worship. Don't do as they do. Well, let's move on now to Easter. As we saw with Lent, we know that Easter, too, is connected with fertility. Matter of fact, we've already talked a little bit about Ishtar, but we'll talk a little bit more as we go on. So I want to read, I want to begin here with the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, a great, great source, by the way. And here's what it says about Easter. It says, the English word comes from the Anglo-Saxon Easter, or Estra, a Teutonic goddess to whom sacrifice was offered in April. So the name was transferred to the Paschal Feast. So I want you to notice that one moment. See the connection between the Paschal Feast and Easter. Did you, do you see that? Passover is first. And they removed Passover for this pagan celebration of Easter. It says, the word does not properly occur in Scripture, although the King James Version has it in Acts 2, verse 4, where it stands for Passover is Pesach. It's not Easter. There is no trace of Easter celebration in the New Testament. The uh, Jewish Christians in the early church continued to observe the Passover. Isn't that amazing? They, they did not accept this Easter counterfeit. Instead, they continued observing and worshiping on the Passover as we find. And you know what's amazing is, and we'll probably talk more about this, but where does the scripture say to recognize Yahshua's resurrection? Where where does it say to to observe his resurrection as a feast day? Where it doesn't, does it? There's nothing in the word that says we're to worship, we're to honor 
his resurrection, but it does say that we're, we're to remember his death. And that's what we do. But anyway, as we see here, some Jewish Christians, and you know, I think that's important too, Jewish Christians. The Jewish Christians, they were rooted within the Hebraic faith. So they retained some of that truth. Where it goes on to say regarding Christ as a true pastoral lamb, and this naturally passed over time, uh, into a commemoration of the death and resurrection of our Lord, it says, or Master, or an Easter feast. This was preceded, preceded by a fast, which was considered by one party as ending at the hour of the crucifixion, that is at 3 o'clock on Friday, by another as continuing until the hour of the resurrection before dawn on Easter morning. So we see here that Easter comes from the Anglo-Saxon deity, Easter, or Estra, depending on how you want to pronounce that. This deity was worshipped by the, uh, in the spring by the ancient Teutons, or the Teutonic people. Now, who were the Teutonic people? This term, Teutonic, was used by the Greeks and Romans to refer to those of, um, of a Germanic and Celtic origin. That's who the Teutons were. It was the, the, the uh, Germans and the Celts, as defined by the uh, Romans and the Greeks. Now, another name often associated with Easter is Ishtar. I'm sure you've all heard that, Ishtar, another name for Easter, which based on mythology was a wife of who? Ishtar was the wife of Tammuz. Was a wife of Tammuz. You know, so while we know that Tammuz was linked to the sun, mythology also shows that Ishtar was linked to the moon. Isn't that amazing? We have fertility worship with both, and yet we see this sun and moon worship, this worship of nature through this, these uh, beings. We also see here that Easter, before Easter, many in the church observe the Passover. That's important to realize. And again, just to sort of note or emphasize here that these were the uh, Jewish Christians, as we find from this reference, those who understood the Hebraic promise. Not only do we see here the removal, but we see why. And I think we see this also through history. You know, the church wanted to appease the pagans. So again, they amalgamated these beliefs. They brought these beliefs and they blended these days. But beyond that, we also know that there was one other motivation and that motivation was that they wanted to, to uh, remove anything Jewish. You know, I think we can see this, a strong desire to move, to move away from anything Jewish very early in the church. Matter of fact, I use this example quite a bit, but um, if you're familiar with the Apostolic Fathers, these were the guys or the books that preceded the apostles, supposedly. There's one book called the Book of Barnabas. And the Book of Barnabas basically states that the Old Testament was not for the Jews, it was for the Christians. And it goes through this book, and it tries to um, uh, show uh, an allegory of everything we find within the Old Testament. For instance, I'll give you an example. The Bible talks about not eating swine. According to Barnabas, this book has nothing to do, or that, that command has nothing to do with eating swine. We're simply implying that we're not to be gluttons. Again, it wasn't for the Jew, it was for the Christian. So we already see, again, this, this desire to move away from anything Jewish very early in the church, and this was one of the motivations we, uh, we have here. As the church grew, so did the 
Greco-Roman or Hellenistic influence within the church. And partially because of this, it was her policy to amalgamate, to, to combine, to adopt these uh, pagan beliefs. Well, you know, the sad reality is, and I get the opportunity to talk to a lot of people each week normally, and uh, one of the things we, we often, uh, often talk about is, is just how little Christianity has, has in common with the Bible. You know, it's amazing. It's amazing how far the church has deviated from biblical truth. Equally sad is the fact that they continue to ignore days like the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the other feast days we find within the Word. And by the way, that, that which, which were also observed and kept by the apostles and the Messiah. I want to read one more reference on Easter, this time from the Nelson's Illustrated Bible Dictionary. And it says, Easter was originally a pagan festival honoring Oster, a Teutonic Germanic goddess of light in spring. You know, notice, these are not... These are not um, hard sources to find. These are very mainstream references. Everybody, any, any uh, minister worth of salt is going to have uh, the Nelson's Bible Dictionary. And it's right here. It tells you exactly where Easter came from. It's not hard to find. It goes on to say, at the time of the vernal equinox, a day in the spring, when the sun crosses the equator in the day and night are of equal length, Sacrifices were offered in her honor. As early in the 8th century, the name was used to designate the annual Christian celebration of the resurrection of Christ, it says. So again, we see here that the word Easter was adopted from the Teutonic people, the uh, goddess of spring. Now, notice when she was worshipped. I want you to really uh, focus and pay attention to this. She was worshipped on the vernal equinox. You know, the equinox is a very long history of pagan worship. And I'm not going to go into that in great detail, but believe me, the, the, the vernal equinox is a very, very long history in paganism. And that's one re- reason why we don't use it here in the uh, beginning of the biblical year. Now, we also see here when the church adopted Easter, symbolizing again the Messiah's resurrection. This was done in the 8th century. Now, think about that for just a moment. Consider that. This is the 8th century almost 800 years after the Messiah's death and resurrection. And yet, no Easter until this time. You know what's amazing is that we find this same trend with so many of the other beliefs we find within the church. Many people, they have this notion that what we find today with the nominal worship came from the apostles, came from the Messiah, came from what we find within the New Testament. Listen, nothing could be further from the truth. So many of these beliefs were brought in, and some of them hundreds of years after the Messiah's death and resurrection. You know, for instance, you know, the, the beloved Trinity, if you're not a believer in the Trinity, by the way, you're considered a heretic, and that's true even today. But did you realize that this belief was not established for 350 years until after the Messiah's death and resurrection? In three... Uh, 324, uh, 325, and then uh, 381. And 381 was a council of Constantinople. At that point, Theodosius I called all the bishops. And then they finally um, solidified the Trinity, the thought, the belief that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-eternal, co-equal, and consubstantial. But again, this took almost 350 years to establish. This wasn't something that the early church simply accepted. There was a lot of division, a lot of uh, fighting, a lot of bloodshed even 
amongst believers because of this belief. So, so many of the beliefs we find within Christianity took literally hundreds of years to develop. Hundreds of years. Now, what if I told you that we actually find examples of Tammuz and Ishtar within Scripture? We actually see examples of this worship in the Bible. I want to begin with Tammuz. So here's what we see in Ezekiel 8, verse 14. And actually, we just read about this in the Bible study. But in Ezekiel 8, verse 14, it says, When he brought me to the door of the gate of Yahweh's house, which was toward the north, and behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Now, I want you to notice, number one, where they were worshiping. We see here that they were worshiping in the temple. You know, by doing this, Israel was desecrating the very place where Yahweh dwelt. And, of course, we know from Ezekiel through reading in the Bible study that Yahweh's glory departed. And it was partially because of this. They were desecrating the temple through the worship of Tammuz. Now, what does it mean here when it says the women were weeping for Tammuz? We've already talked a little bit about this, but I want to read part of what we find from Barnes' notes. So here's what Barnes notes. Barnes notes is a fairly good commentary very in-depth, and here's what it says about the worship of Tammuz. It says, this solemnity was of a twofold character. First, that of mourning, in which the death of Adonis was bewailed with extravagant sorrow. Then, after a few days, the mourning gave place to wild rejoicings for his restoration to life. This was a revival of nature worship under another form. The death of Adonis symbolized the suspension and of the productive powers of nature which were in due time revived. Accordingly, the time of this festival was the summer solstice. So it's not the, 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 um, the winter, but the summer solstice, the summertime, when in the east nature, uh, nature seems to wither and die under the scorching heat of the sun to burst forth again into life at the due season. At the same time, there was a connection between this and the sun worship. Isn't that amazing? So here we find evidence here that Tammuz was not only associated with the fertility worship, but also with sun worship. It says in that the decline of the sun and the decline of nature might be alike represented by the death of Adonis. The excitement attendant upon these extravagancies of alternate wailing and exaltation were in complete accordance with the character of nature worship, which for this reason was so popular in the East, especially with women, and led by inevitable consequence to unbridled license and excess debauchery, sin, and immorality. Such was in Ezekiel's day one of the most detestable forms of idolatry. So according to Barnes' notes here, the worship of Tammuz was one of the most repugnant and vile forms of worship we find within the Old Testament. It was an abomination. Now you would think that Israel would be above this. You would think that a nation called by Yahweh's name would not sink to such apostasy, would not degrade to such immorality. But as we know, Israel has a very long history of sin, has a very long history of adopting these pagan ideas. You know, in some ways, and I believe that Israel was even worse than her neighbors. Number one, she knew better. But number two, you know, she would adopt many of these uh, pagan traditions but she would even serve them in more egregious ways. We know that Israel even worshipped Molech, offering their, their children to this, to this false mighty one. You know, it's for this uh, defiance that led Israel and Judah into captivity. We know that the uh, ten 
northern tribes were conquered by the Assyrians, and later the southern tribes, Benjamin and, and Judah, were conquered by the Babylonians. You know, in many ways, this is precisely what we see in the church. Isn't that amazing? You know, I've always found this parallel just striking, remarkable in some ways. As we find from Israel of old, the church of new has forsaken Yahweh's word, has amalgamated these pagan beliefs. Again, just like Israel of old, no different. You know, remember that according to Hislop, Lent goes back to the worship of Tammuz. And as we've seen from multiple sources here, Easter goes back to the Anglo-Saxon Easter Ishtar. Now, speaking about the worship of Ishtar, we find two examples of this within the book of Jeremiah. And I'm going to look at one today, Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7, starting in verse 17. It says, Seest thou not what they do in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? And you know, the one thing we find within the context, if we really read this, is the people here, they weren't ashamed. They were not ashamed of what they were doing. In many ways, they were proud of what they were doing. This is the children gather wood. So notice here, they're using the children to, to uh, worship this mighty one. It says, and the fathers kindle the fire. The women knead their dough. Now, this is a real family event here. They get everybody involved. To make cakes to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings unto other mighty ones, that they may provoke me to anger. Do they provoke me to anger, saith Yahweh? Do they not provoke themselves to the confusion of their own faces? Therefore, thus saith my sovereign Yahweh, Behold, mine anger and my fury shall be poured out upon this place, upon man. And notice here the scope of Yahweh's judgment. He says, Upon man and upon beast and upon the trees of the field and upon the fruit of the ground, it shall burn. And shall not be quenched. Now, of course, this phrase here, not be quenched, we know that eventually it would be quenched. The phrase here, not be quenched, this is a, uh, a euphemism, if you will, of Yahweh's total destruction, which Judah would suffer because of this decadence, because of this sin, because of this immorality. You know, as we saw in Ezekiel, we see here that Judah was up to their eyeballs in this pagan worship. In this case, it wasn't Tammuz. It was the worship of the Queen of Heaven. And by the way, the Queen of Heaven, this is simply another name for Ishtar, or Easter, or Estra. Same thing, same deity, same worship. So when you think Queen of Heaven, think Easter. We see here that the people were sacrificing these cakes to this Queen of Heaven. Now what, what do we know about these cakes? We're going to like to refer to a reference here. This is from the Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown Commentary. It gives a description of these cakes. It says, cakes are made of honey, fine flour, etc., in a round, flat shape to resemble the disc of what? The disc of the moon, not the disc of the sun, the disc of the moon, because, again, Ishtar was connected with what? Ishtar was connected with the moon. Ishtar was not connected with the sun. Tammuz was connected with the sun. Tammuz and Ishtar were what? Husband and wife. So to resemble the moon to which they offered, the Phoenicians called the moon Ashtoreth, or Astarte. We've probably heard these terms. The wife of Baal, or Moloch. 
the king of heaven. The male and female pair of deities symbolize the generative powers of nature. Hence arose the introduction of prostitution and worship. Can you imagine? Prostitution within worship. This was not only acceptable, but this is how they worshipped their mighty one. Goes on to say the Babylonians worshipped her as Mylita. That is generative. It says our Monday or moon day indicates the former prevalence of moon worship. So we see here that these cakes were in the shape of what? The shape was in the moon. Because again, the queen of heaven, or Ishtar, represents the moon. And as a side note, some scholars point out that the name Allah also refers to the moon. And I believe that. I I believe based on what I've seen that originally there was a deity called Allah within the Arab people. Matter of fact, according to what I understand, that this Allah was was a chief deity. And uh, this is what Muhammad decided to run with, this Allah, which again was originally a moon god. And of course, I think that also uh, lends weight as you see this crescent moon on the top of many of these mosques. So again, even with uh, Islam, do we see this connection with the moon worship through, this, through, this, uh, through Allah? Now, what does Yahweh say here about this worship? Well, number one, he's not real happy about it. We see that here. He says here that because of this worship, that he's going to pour out his anger, and that anger will not be quenched. And we see here that this anger is not only targeted to the, to the people, but also even the trees, the nature itself. Yahweh is going to completely annihilate, completely obliterate the nation of Judah because of this sin. Matter of fact, and you know, let's read this. I don't have this in my notes, but I think we have a little bit of time. So turn with me if you would, or you can just listen. doesn't matter. doesn't matter. Uh, Jeremiah chapter um, 44, and uh, this is referring to these uh, Jews who escaped Babylon. They escaped the captivity. Now, you would think that if Yahweh passed a judgment upon your nation, and that if you had a superpower come in and remove this nation, that you would think twice about this false worship. But no, not for Judah. Not for Judah. So we see here... Jeremiah, let's see, I think it is in uh, 25, 26. So let's read, let's start with verse 24. It says, Moreover, Jeremiah said unto all the people, unto the women, hear the word of Yahweh. He says to the women, because the women were especially proud of this. You know, if we read the entire passage, the women are saying to Jeremiah, you know, look, our husbands know exactly what we're doing. There's no need to be concerned. We're not hiding what we're doing. So we see here that he emphasizes women here because they were refusing and they were very proud of what they were doing. Hear the word of Yahweh, all Judah, and all in the land of Egypt. And that's where these people were. It says, Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, the Elohim of Israel, saying, You and your wives have both spoken with your mouths and have fulfilled with your hands. In other words, they're worshiping this deity. They're refusing to comply with Jeremiah, to acknowledge his warning. And because of this, here's the consequences. We will surely perform our vows that he have vowed to burn incense to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings unto her. You will surely accomplish your vows and surely perform your vows. 
And you know, that's the way Yahweh works. There's a point, I believe, where Yahweh says, fine, have it your way. And we see that here. Yahweh has warned. He has given many, many opportunities. And the people simply refuse to repent. So Yahweh says, fine, fulfill your vows. But here's a consequence. He says, therefore, hear you the word of Yahweh, all Judah, that dwell in the land of Egypt. Behold, I have sworn by my great name, saith Yahweh, that my name shall no more be named in the mouth of any man of Judah in all the land of Egypt, saying, my sovereign Yahweh lives. So what punishment do we see here? What did Yahweh do? What curse did he pronounce upon the people of Judah? Or we see here that they were not allowed to use his name. They were not allowed to pronounce his name because of this act of insolence, this act of rebellion. You know, considering what Yahweh says here, is it reasonable to believe that he's okay with days like Lent and Easter? Days that were borrowed from the worship of Tammuz and the worship of Ishtar or the Queen of Heaven. We're going to, the answer should be pretty obvious. Our Father in Heaven, he would be abhorred, and I'm sure he is abhorred at this worship. You know, as we see in the book of Malachi, it says there that Yahweh doesn't change. Yahweh doesn't change. What this means is the same, the, the same standards, the same judgment, the same morals, the same requirements that we find in the old we also find in the new. To believe that he would define something as an abomination in the old and then be okay with that same abomination in the new is irrational or nonsensical. When it comes to his worship, he doesn't change. We know from Scripture that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. His morals, his requirements, his commands, they don't change. I want to spend a few minutes talking about the actual timing of Yahshua's death and resurrection and see if the traditional time that we find within Christianity lines up. So let's take a look at Matthew 12. Matthew 12, 40. This is a real important prophecy. And here's what it says in Matthew 12, verse 40. It says, For as the Jonas, of course we know that's Jonah, right? Jonah, was three days and three nights in the well's belly, or the belly of the fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Yahshua says here that he would be in the heart of the earth how long? He says for three days, right, and three nights. Now I want to point out two things. Number one, when it says three days and three nights, by definition, listen, by definition this refers to full three days and full three nights. Number two, we also see here that Yahshua said that he would be where? That he would be in the heart of the earth, meaning that he would be in the sepulcher for full three days and full three nights. Now, the reason I point this out, some will try to use fuzzy math, or they'll try to, um, they'll try to start the clock before Yahshua was in the grave or in the sepulcher. But again, according to Yahshua, we know two things for sure. He would be in the heart of the earth for three full days and three full nights. We know that. Okay, so with this in mind, when was Yahshua, when did he die? 
and when was he resurrected? Well, I think we find the answer in Luke 23, starting in verse 53. It says there, and he took it down, and he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone, wherein man or never man before was laid. And that day was the preparation. So what day is called the preparation? Passover. Passover is the day. Matter of fact, you know, some people will call Friday preparation day. And I have no issues with that, by the way. I, I don't mind that. But technically, biblically, there's only one preparation day. And that preparation day is, is a Passover, and it's to prepare for the feast. And it says, in the Sabbath drew on. So what, what day is the Sabbath there? This is a high day, right? It's not the weekly Sabbath. It's the first high day. So the Sabbath drew on. And the women also which came with him from Galilee followed after him. Behold, the sepulcher and how his body was laid. And they returned. They returned. So this would have been after the Sabbath, after the, after the first high day. They returned and prepared spices and ointments and rested then on the Sabbath day according to the command. So let's review this one more time. I'm going to give you a few hints here. So again, preparation day is... Wednesday, we got the preparation day on Wednesday, the Sabbath. Again, this is the first high day to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This would have been Thursday. And we see here that the women have prepared spices and ointments, or they would not have done this on Thursday, which means they, they would have done this on Friday, right? Friday. And then they rested when? They rested according to the Sabbath, which would be Saturday, Saturday. We have a nifty chart. Oh, actually, before the chart, here's a sort of a, a descriptive description of how, when Yahshua died and was resurrected. So Wednesday, or this was Passover day, Yahshua was taken down from the tree and placed in the tomb before sunset. Thursday, this was the first high day of the Feast of Love and Bread. No work was permitted. So again, the, the, the women would not have prepared the uh, spices and ointments for Yahshua's uh, body at this point. Friday, the women prepared spices and ointments for Yahshua's body. Saturday, since this was the weekly Sabbath, the people rested. Yahshua was resurrected before sunset on Saturday and uh, fulfilling the uh, three days and three nights. So, if, of course, I, I say it there, that Yahshua was resurrected sun, uh, uh, Saturday before sunset. So what do we know scripturally? Well, we know that Yahshua died about 3 p.m., right? But scripture says that he would be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. So you don't begin the count at 3 p.m., right? You, be, you begin the count when his body was placed within the sepulcher. Or we know that his body had to be placed within the sepulcher before sunset on Wednesday. Because what began Wednesday night? Or Wednesday night began the feast. It was a high day. They could not have taken the body and placed it in the tomb on the high day. So they took Yahshua's body down after his death and probably sometime close. The scripture doesn't say exactly when, but I'm sure close to sunset on Wednesday, Yahshua was placed in the tomb. So then you count three days and three nights from Wednesday afternoon. And if we do that, you have day one, Wednesday, Thursday, right? Day two, Thursday to Friday, and day three, Friday to Saturday. And we know again that he was put in the tomb when? He was put in the tomb before sunset, probably right before sunset. 
So as we see through scripture, Yahshua was resurrected. He died on Wednesday and then was resurrected late on the Sabbath before sunset. Now I'm going to show you the nifty chart. Oh, I'm going to skip this because this chart did not come out. I'm not sure what happened in the converting process, but um, you can sort of see it here, although you can't read the description. I do apologize for that. I should have looked at the slide. But uh, Wednesday, of, uh, again, he, he died on Wednesday, was uh, buried or taken to the uh, sepulcher Wednesday evening before sunset. So again, Wednesday to Thursday, you have the uh, day one, when, uh, Thursday to Friday, day two, and Friday to Sabbath day three. So what do we find with this information? We see here that the traditional timing of Yahshua's death is not found in the Bible. Beyond the fact that scripture shows Wednesday to us Saturday, we also have another issue, and that is just mathematics. You know, you would think that these great theologians would be able to count. Yahshua says three days and three nights. How do you get three days and three nights from Friday afternoon to Sunday morning? Well, that's not three days and three nights. So again, just from a mathematical standpoint, this is not possible. Now I want to spend a few moments looking and emphasizing what Yahweh says about adopting pagan worship. So let's look at a few scriptures, avoiding paganism. Leviticus 18, verse 3, says, After the doings of the land of Egypt, wherein you dwelt, shall you, shall you not do. And after the doings of the land of Canaan, and you know, the Canaanites were especially egregious. I know uh, I've heard uh, some of the folks describe the Canaanites as the Nazis of their day. What they were doing was just an abomination. It was an abomination. And yet we know that Israel would eventually adopt many of these days. But Yahweh says, don't do that. He says, whether I bring you, you should not do. Neither shall you walk in their ordinances. Leviticus 20, verse 23 says, and you shall not walk in the manners of the nations, which I cast out before you, for they committed all these things, and therefore I abhorred them. Well, that's pretty strong language. I abhorred them. I hated them. I, I loathed them because of their worship. You know, in one place in the Old Testament, Yahweh tells Israel, he says, I'm not giving you this land because of your righteousness, because of something great you've, you've done. He says, I'm giving you this land because of the abominations of the nations within it. You see, the people were so wicked that Yahweh had to remove them. And in their place, he gave the land Israel, but he did not give the land because of something Israel did. He did not give the land, he says, because of, because of Israel's righteousness. He gave the land because the abominations were so great within these nations. So we see here that he abhorred them, he hated them, he loathed these abominations. Deuteronomy 12, 30 through 31, it says, Take heed to thyself that thou be not sneered by following them. After, they, that, after that they be destroyed from before thee. And that thou inquire not after their mighty ones, saying, How did these nations serve their mighty ones? Don't even ask. Even so will I do likewise. Thou shalt not do so unto Yahweh the Elohim, for every abomination to Yahweh which he hates have they done unto their mighty one, mighty ones, for even their sons and their daughters they have burned, burnt in the fire to their mighty ones. 
And that was a horrible, horrible example of pagan worship, by the way. They would kill their child. They would then lay the corpse of their dead child in the arms of this deity where it would then slide into this fire. And um, they, they would worship this deity in, in, in this way. And again, you know, we've already talked about how uh, prostitution and other things were, were uh, done. It's just amazing. It really is amazing that, that these nations would, would do such horrible things. And again, for this reason, Yahweh loathed these nations. He had to remove these nations. Revelation 18, verse 4, one more passage. It says, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. You know, Yahweh is very emphatic when it comes to his worship. How many times does he say within his word, don't do as the nations, don't learn their worship, don't mimic how they worship their mighty ones. He told Israel not to follow in the ways of Egypt and Canaan. And as we saw in the book of Revelation, we're commanded to do what? He says to come out of her, my people. To come out of her, my people. This means that we're to remove ourselves from false worship. You know, as believers in the Messiah, our calling is real simple. We're to obey the one we worship without compromise. And you know, when people call and ask about the ministry, I say, look, I said it's real simple. We're simply trying to follow what Scripture says apart from man's tradition. If Scripture says to do it, we do it. It's not complicated. And, you know, I believe that Yahweh's word, a child can understand it. It's not difficult. It really isn't. Man makes Yahweh's word complicated. All the theologians out there, man makes Yahweh's word complicated. Yahweh doesn't make his word complicated. Yahweh says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. He says, I'm going to be your mighty one, and you're going to be my people. But you're going to have to listen and obey me. It's it's, it's, It's no more difficult than that. It really isn't. And people, they make it difficult. They make it complicated. They add these days of worship. And then when they add these days of worship, they have to find ways to, to, to justify these things, as we've seen and as we've read throughout some of these sources. But look, Yahweh doesn't justify these days of worship. Yahweh doesn't justify deviating from his word. Yahweh doesn't justify when we go another way. We must go Yahweh's way. And that's what we're to do, and, and I believe as his people, that's what we're striving to do here at this ministry. And I, I want to say this, too. If, if you're new to this ministry, you know, because we're, we're reaching out all the time on YouTube and some of these places, if you're new to this ministry, if you've never heard this before, I would encourage you to simply prove it out. Because one of the things I do believe that if you prove what we're saying, you're going to find that it's the truth. It's not hard to find. We simply need to take the time to study these things out, to look, to prove, and again, we're going to see that this is a truth. Well, I pray that this message has been a blessing to you, and I pray that as Yahweh's people, as believers here, that we always shine as an example to the Messiah. May Yahweh bless you.